heard sung for us, this psalm that we will sing uh, at the conclusion of this service. We're spending our summer uh, in this collection of 15 psalms that has been called the, the Songs of Ascent. It's been called the, the Little Psalter Within the Psalter. It's been called Pilgrim Psalms. And they were the, a type of playlist uh, for the people of Israel as they made their journey from their homes up to the holy city of Jerusalem. Songs that they would sing together on their way. And these psalms come from different genres. So Psalm 120, the first pilgrim psalm, is a psalm of lament. This is like the country song of the psalms. And we saw that uh, Psalm 120 says we are pilgrims in this world. And we face opposition on our journey to God. And in our distress, we call to the Lord. And he answers us. In Psalm 121, the second pilgrim song is a a psalm of of confidence. So this is like hip-hop. In a world full of difficulty and darkness, we have confidence and assurance that the Lord who watches over us at all times will take care of us in all of our lives. When we need help, we lift our eyes to the Lord, and he keeps us no matter what. And today we're going to look at the, the third pilgrim song. And it's Psalm 122, and it, it's a, a psalm of Zion. Uh, and so this would be, I think, maybe the classic rock of the psalms. And these psalms, which include 46, 48, 76, 84, 87, 122, and 132, praise the Lord for establishing and blessing his people by extolling the city of God, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city representing the presence of God with his people, the home of the temple and the center of God's worship. And so the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem, was always the goal of the pilgrimage of God's people. And Psalm 122 was written by David, and it's composed from the perspective of a pilgrim who has made the journey and has arrived in Jerusalem. And as Jewish believers were making their way to the city of God, they sang this pilgrim song remembering the glorious times in the past of feasting together and worshiping together in the house of the Lord. And they allowed those past memories to feed their excitement and their anticipation as they traveled. After high school, uh, some of you know that I, I spent a year as a missionary in Japan. Uh, and, and I remember it, it was a long, it was a long, it was a good, it was a life-transforming year, but I had so many uh, different times when I was there, these bouts with homesickness. And as I was on that very long flight back home from Tokyo Narita Airport to the Birmingham International Airport in Alabama, I remember taking my CD Discman, and my giant uh, folder of CDs that I had traveled with in my carry-on, and opening up and selecting Leonard Skinner's greatest hits, and sliding that CD into my discman and hitting play, and the opening strains of Sweet Home Alabama came on. And I chose that song because it was connected to my memories, and it was connected to my destination, and it built my anticipation and my excitement for friends and family and church and home. 
And that's what this psalm did for pilgrims on their way to the gathering of God's people. And that's what this psalm should do for us as we think about gathering together for worship. And that's what this psalm is meant to do for all God's people as we move through this world and through this life on the way to the true holy city, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. So let's look together at Psalm 122. And if you're able, please stand in honor of God's word. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as it was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's thank the Lord for his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for King David and his love for you and his desire to worship you and his passion for your people to be gathered in the place that you appointed for your worship. And Lord, I pray that this morning, using what he wrote, Holy Spirit, by your inspiration, that you would create in us the kind of anticipation and excitement and gladness about worship that we see in our forefather, King David. Lord, help us to see the blessing that God commands among the unity of his people. Help us to see the glory of worship and what it means for us to be your house. Lord, we thank you that you inspired this text and that you appointed it for us this morning. We pray that everything you want your people to grasp in this text will be made clear. And Lord, that our lives will be changed that they will be transformed exactly as you mean for them to. Do all of this according to your will, for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the Old Testament, God manifested his presence with his people in a physical place. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem the temple, in the most holy place. That is where the people of God could say, that is where the presence of God dwells with his people, in the city of Jerusalem, in the building of the temple, in the section called the most holy place. That place declares to us that our God is with us. And even if we live far away, We are reminded that there is a city of our God and that we will go there. And we will go there three times a year to be reminded that our God is with us. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, 
When the eternal Son of God came into the world as a human being, truly God and truly human, He came to us as Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So God with us comes to us. And one day he encounters a woman of Samaria at the well. And he tells her when she questions him about worship to distract him from other things that he brings up. That a day is coming and is now here where the people of God will no longer be required to worship the Lord on the mount in Jerusalem. But everywhere people worship God in spirit and in truth, he will be rightly worshipped and he will receive the worship of his people. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain to the Holy of Holies in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. It was ripped from the direction of heaven to the direction of earth, showing what Jesus had claimed when he referred to his own body as the temple of God, that it would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And after he accomplished all of this through his death and resurrection, he ascended to the Father's right hand and he poured out his spirit on his people. So now the presence of God is no longer in a physical location. The presence of God with his people is in his people. The presence of God is no longer in a physical location. Jerusalem, the temple, the most holy place. No, God has taken up residence within his people. The Israelite pilgrims saying, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Referring to the gathering of God's people in the city of Jerusalem for those three annual feasts. But where is the house of the Lord now? The New Testament tells us where the house of the Lord is. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We're going to come back to Hebrews several times, but Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, that's Jesus. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Where is the house of the Lord now? It's here, not in this building, but in this People, We, the church, are the house of the Lord through Jesus Christ. And so this psalm models for us and calls us to this kind of anticipation for our gathering together to worship the Lord. And specifically, this psalm calls us to do three things regarding church. Three things regarding the house of the Lord. And the first is this. Go with gladness. Verse 1, go with gladness. I was 
glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. A couple of times, um, we have had the privilege of surprising our children uh, with a trip to a particular place that people refer to as the happiest place on earth. And Disney World. And, and the first time we surprised our children uh, with the fact that we were going to Disney World, they, they'd never been before. They didn't really know exactly what it was. They were familiar with the Disney Channel and with Mickey Mouse, but they didn't know what it was. And so they, they got excited and they let out some squeals of delight. But the, the second time, several years later, that we got to surprise them again with Disney World, the screams of joy and anticipation filled our house and probably also our neighborhood. They had experienced in the past something that led to joy and gladness and anticipation and excitement in the future. And as adults, I think if we're honest, it's kind of hard to find that level of joy in in basically anything. But what's the approximate equivalent for you? Is it a big time sporting event? Is it going to a Broadway musical? Is it the vacation that you have been longing for? Is it going to a party with a lot of people? Is it being alone with a book? Is it that first sip of coffee in the morning? Do you feel anticipation, excitement, or gladness when you think about coming together with God's people for worship? I know that we are all busy. I know that we are all feeling Uh, stress and anxiety so much of the time that our world is seemingly in chaos and that we all have a lot on our plates and that we all have a lot of options available to us. But if there is not a going with gladness to the gathering of God's people for worship, then we should ask why. Is it because We do not recognize the privilege. If any of us were invited to to sit down with uh, our personal human hero, the person that you admire the most, that's not in your immediate circle of life, someone that you ordinarily wouldn't have access to, but that person that you admire, that person that you look up to, that person that has achieved things that you find noble and honorable, if we were invited to to do such a thing, to be with a person of such character or fame or accomplishment, we would jump at the chance and and we would immediately uh, find out, how am I going to get to this meeting? I'm going to be there 15 minutes or, or more earlier. I'm going to be dressed exactly how I want to be dressed to make the impression that I want to make with this person. We would count it a great privilege to be in the presence of this person whose greatness we admire and And yet, week after week after week, we have the privilege of being invited and called and commanded and welcomed by the creator of the universe into his presence. For him to delight in us, 
to rejoice over his people, this spiritual house with singing, to give to us grace. We have this enormous privilege to, to be together under his word and around his table. And do we not recognize the privilege? Wouldn't we be filled with excitement and anticipation if we recognized even just a little bit of the privilege that it is to be in the presence of Almighty God together with His people? Is it because we don't recognize the significance? I preached this, a message, or rather a, a series on worship a few years ago, and I, I titled the, the whole series, The Most Important Thing That You Will Ever Do. And my conviction on that ha- hasn't changed, that worship is the most important thing that we will ever do. Worship is the thing for which we were created. Many things in this world are going to pass away in eternity, but you know what what won't is worship. We will continue worship in eternity, and worship has eternal significance right now. We are in the cosmic struggle of the universe against the forces of darkness. We tend to be very limited and empirical and practical, and we see our enemies as, as the people around us who don't see things as we do. Those are not our true enemy, the Bible tells us. Even, those who would, even the people, our neighbors who would oppose us, even those who would hate us or even kill us if they had the chance, those aren't our true enemies, tells the Scripture. It says, no, Our enemy, we we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Against spiritual forces of darkness. We have a great enemy, and our weapons against this enemy are not the weapons of this world. They are spiritual weapons, and so worship is war. In worship, we gather together and we do things that look weak to the world, but they are an assault on the gates of hell. What we do in worship has eternal significance. Do we realize that? Is it because we don't recognize the scandal? We have no business in the presence of a holy and all-righteous God. The scandal of the gospel, the scandal of grace is that God so loved sinners like you and like me that he sent his only son into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To die on a cross in our place to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's law that condemned us so that we would never be condemned. And as such... As those who are covered in the blood of Christ, as those who have been reconciled to God through Christ's atoning work on the cross, we are welcomed into his presence with his people to give him praise. And he looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ and receives our worship, imperfect, frail, and fragile, distracted as it is. He receives our worship as a pleasing aroma. Because of what Christ has done for us. This is a scandal. This is an outrage. This is beautiful. We realize that we have no business here, but God in his mercy and grace and love welcomes us into his presence for worship. It's a scandal, a beautiful scandal. Is it because we do not recognize our need? Have we inoculated ourselves 
with the creature comforts of this world to the degree that we do not see our need for the comfort of the gospel week after week after week in word and prayer and sacrament. Have we, so, have we made ourselves so comfortable that we don't see our desperate need of the grace of God in our lives every moment? Do you know that you need to hear the word of God read and preached? That you need to be fed week after week by the word of God? Do you know that you need to join your heart and your mind with other saints in prayer? Do you know that you need to gather around the table of the Lord to partake of the body and blood of Christ through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Do you know that given all that God has done for you, you need to return to Him praise and thanksgiving and glory by proclaiming His name and His excellencies in song? Do you realize your need? Is it simply because we are more attracted to and find more joy in the things of this world? And I just want to say briefly that uh, I'm not, I am talking about work. And I am, of course, talking about stuff. But I'm also talking about comfort. And by that I mean internal comfort. As a pastor's kid who reluctantly became a pastor, I know this. Church is not easy. There is hurt. There is awkwardness. For my part in that, I apologize. There is disappointment. There is sin. There is conflict. People may say things you don't like. The music may not be to your taste. But this, the gathering of God's people for corporate public worship is where God promises to meet his people, to give us weekly grace. This is where our deepest needs are met. This is where we find the family that God has brought us into. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, weird uncles. This is where we engage in the most important thing that we will ever do. We have an invitation from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, hear the goodness of this. We have an invitation from the Lord, not three times a year, but 52 times a year, week after week after week on the Lord's day, not to simply go to the house of the Lord, but together to be the house of the Lord. So let's cultivate a going with gladness to God's worship. Shannon's grandfather, Papa, uh, was together with his wife, Grandma, raising four boys in Orlando, Florida. And Papa was not up to this point in his life, uh, a churchgoer. One Sunday morning, 
he was sitting at the breakfast table, I assume, having his coffee, maybe reading his newspaper. He said bye to the family, and he watched as Grandma led those four boys right down the street to College Park Baptist Church for worship. And by the intervening of the Holy Spirit, Papa said, I see their mother leading them to worship God. I'm going to lead them from now on. And from that point on, he never stopped. This call to go with gladness is for every believer, but it is Father's Day. And I want to honor you brothers who understand and live out before your families a going with gladness to the house of the Lord. The reality is, fathers and mothers and spiritual fathers and mothers, we are sending a message to our children, to our biological children, to our covenant children. We are sending a message not only about church, but about God in the way we go to the house of the Lord. If we neglect to go for other priorities, it sends a message that they will receive and it sets a pattern that they will repeat. If we neglect to go because of other priorities in our life, it sends a message that they will receive and it sets a pattern that they will repeat. If we begrudgingly go to the house of the Lord, It sends a message that they will receive, and it sets a pattern that they will repeat. If we go with gladness to the house of the Lord, it sends a message about the church, but more importantly, about God himself. It sends a message they will receive, and it sets a pattern that by God's grace, they will repeat. Go with gladness. The second thing. To delight in duty. We see that in verses 2 through 5. Delight in duty. Worship is a joy, but it is also a command. It is a duty for the people of God in which we are to delight. And the psalmist in these verses expresses his delight in obedience to God's decrees. Verse 4 tells us that the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed by God for Israel. And as they are there with their feet standing in the gates of the holy city, verse 2, David extols the virtues of Jerusalem. He says it is built as a city that is bound firmly together, verse 3. In Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David, verse 5. And these images are factually correct things about Jerusalem, but they are also metaphors. And they are metaphors for the duty of the tribes that are going up to Jerusalem. That they go, to begin with. That they go in obedience to God's word to Jerusalem. That though they are different from one another, these are 12 individual tribes. They're different from one another. They are still one people of God and are to be bound together firmly. Like the buildings in Jerusalem in unity. And that when they are gathered as the house of the Lord, they are to safeguard the purity of God's house and pursue justice together. As Christians, we have a duty before the Lord and he means for it to be our great delight. We have a duty before the Lord and he means for it to be our great delight. 
at times, theological language can be difficult to understand. Uh, it can be rote. It, it may even be considered boring. But I, I want to ask you to just give attention for a minute to our shorter catechism, a, a part of our standards as it talks about the Lord appointing this gathering for his people and our duty regarding it. So this is uh, our shorter catechism. And I actually think the language here is, is beautiful. Which is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is in within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Of course, that's beautiful because that is the very language of Scripture in the fourth commandment. What is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. Which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Basically, how is the Sabbath to be observed by the people of God? The Sabbath is to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made holy. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreation as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbiddeth the omission or careless performance of the duties required, and the profaning of the day by idleness, or by doing that which is in itself sinful, or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about our worldly employments or recreations. Brothers and sisters, our duty on the Lord's day is to enter into the delight of rest. Nowhere. In this world, nowhere in 21st century United States of America will you hear this kind of invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. And our one day in seven, the first day of the week, because on the first day of the week, our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead to give his people an eternal rest. This day of the week is to be a weekly reminder of the rest that the gospel provides to us. And we are to look away from the world. We are to look away from our worldly employments and recreations. And we are to look to Christ. And we are to find real, true, wonderful rest. Does that sound good? Nobody ever told me that vacation with kids was not vacation. 
It's not entirely true. Now that my kids are getting older, it's been a little bit more restful. But it's so hard to find rest, isn't it? From every corner, all the time, go, 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 not the Lord's day. Our God says, rest. Rest in Christ. He has done all. Rest. Rest from the world. Whatever it is, it can wait. And work for good. Take all the energy that we devote the rest of the week to working for other things. And work necessary things and merciful things. Do good to one another and do good to your neighbor. And in that, find rest. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near go with gladness delight in duty and lastly pray for peace we see that in verses six through nine pray for peace pray for the peace of jerusalem may they be secure who love you peace be within your walls and security within your towers for my brothers and companions sake i will say peace be within you For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. Motivated by love for the people of God. May they be secure who love you. For the sake of my brothers and companions. And motivated by passion for the worship of God. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God. David calls the people to pray. Specifically to pray for peace. And what was true of the Old Testament saints making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the city of peace, is true for us in 21st century Charlotte, North Carolina. We are sinners surrounded by sinners. Amen? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. They are sinners. We are sinners surrounded by sinners. The shalom The peace that we were created for, the internal, relational, religious, and civil peace that we were created to enjoy has been disrupted by sin. Christ comes into the world. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. He reconciles us to God and to each other. And this is already objectively and eternally true, that Christ has made permanent peace with God on our behalf, and we are reconciled not only to God, but to each other. This is already and eternally true. But it is not yet practically and temporally true. Sin 
that is still present in our lives, in our church, in our community, in the world, sin still creates barriers and conflict and brokenness. And we as the house of God, even though we are sinners, are to be a community of peace that we might proclaim peace in word and deed to a world where peace is absent. And the truth is, we can't do that. Only God can do that for us and in us and through us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must pray. Pray. And here's where I would tell myself and you to start. Pray for your own struggle to pray. Pray for your own struggle to pray. I know that prayer is a struggle. I know that we go days without praying. I know that when we're praying, sometimes it feels like our prayers are bouncing off of the ceiling. I know that other times when we're praying, it feels like God is silent and ignoring us. I know that other times when we're trying to pray, we fall asleep or we get distracted thinking about other things. Prayer is hard work. And it is a struggle for sinners like me. And so I pray for my struggle to pray. And I would encourage you to do the same. But brothers and sisters, we must pray. What if we prayed? James tells us, the brother of Jesus writes, You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. I want you to think about that in your life with regard to all the spiritual blessings that are available to you in Christ. If you are lacking in any spiritual benefit or good, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. And I want you to think about this with regard to our community of faith. Jesus says, anything that you ask in my name, I will do it. What if we prayed? The Shorter Catechism, again, tells us that that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. An offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. How do you know that you are praying God's will? How do you know that your desires are in concert with God's will? So that when you pray, you are praying truly in the name of Jesus. Pray for peace. Pray for peace. God's will is peace. God sent Jesus to make peace by the blood of his cross. Pray that that peace would be manifest in your heart. Pray that that peace would be manifest in your household. Pray that that peace would be manifest in our church as we have through Christ been reconciled to one another. And pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be seen in and through our witness and testimony as the one who brings peace by those who have no peace that they might also receive peace through the gospel. Pray for the peace of our church. Pray for the peace of Back Creek Church. 
Pray for the peace of the church. Pray for the peace of the church globally. Pray for the good of our city and of every place for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. In light of who our God is and all that he has done for us, King David calls us to go with gladness to the house of the Lord, where we delight in the goodness of our duty and pray for peace. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Oh Lord, we do pray for the peace of your church. This local expression of your church here in Charlotte, Lord, churches all around our city, our state, our nation, the world. Lord, we pray that your peace would be abundantly manifest in your church. Where, Lord, there is still, to this day, conflict. But I pray that you would bring peace. And that our peace among one another would be a testimony to a world that is without peace. Lord, that they would see us week after week going with gladness and delighting in our duty. And it would stand as a testimony to who you are and to what you have done. A testimony to the truth and the power of the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this time together in your word. And we ask that you would bless it to our hearts. Lord, help us to receive what you have to say to us and help us to be transformed by it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word and song.